patients are increasingly seeking accurate information about vaccine safety. Many reach out to friends and family, and others scan media reports or search the internet. But patients who have vaccine questions still consider their primary care physician the main source for reliable information. What do patients want to know? Are you prepared with the answers? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focused on children's health. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Martin Myers, an internationally recognized vaccine expert and former director for the Department of Health and Human Services National Vaccine Program Office. Dr. Myers is co-author of the book, Do Vaccines Cause That? A Guide for Evaluating Vaccine Safety Concerns. Welcome, Dr. Myers. Thank you. We're discussing what patients want to know about vaccine safety. Now, this book is for patients and for doctors, but for patients, how is this book different from other books that might already be on the market? Well, when we went to bookstores to see what was available for parents, we found there were were some good books about vaccine-preventable diseases, and there were a great number of books with containing misinformation about vaccine safety. We really couldn't find a book that specifically address the vaccine safety issues about vaccines, and that's what we tried to do. We're not trying to advocate, but we're just trying to give parents information because we find that at least people who utilize our website, they're looking for information and they're looking for reliable information. And actually, not only will they come in and read a, an essay about a particular topic, but they will link across to essays we've written that are in our archive on, on how to evaluate whether information is reliable or not. So I think a lot of parents are confused by what they hear and what they read in the media. They're not quite sure what the facts are. And the purpose of our book was to write the evidence about vaccine safety and to present it in a way that is friendly for parents to read. In fact, when we wrote the book, each section of the book is has been reviewed by technical colleagues of mine. Every section has been reviewed by two or three experts But then our hardest reviewers were a second panel of reviewers who were parents and grandparents who would read the sections and tell us whether it was clear or not. And sometimes they told us that we used technical jargon, and sometimes they said a a busy mother wasn't going to read that section because it was hard reading, and so we went back and rewrote it. So it's intentionally written to be accurate based on evidence, and we review the evidence and it's intended to be read by parents. Now, as a vaccine expert, some patients might see this as you're being a mouthpiece for a governmental organization or maybe for a vaccine manufacturer. What's your response to that? We're frequently charged with things like that. I receive no support, and my nonprofit corporation receives no support from the pharmaceutical industry nor from the federal government. We're a completely nonprofit organization, and I personally am And Diego Pineda, my co-author, we have no conflicts of interest of any kind. And we think it's very important that parents understand that. Now, parents often come to me in my practice and say, well, I've done my research on these vaccines and I've chosen not to give them. Yet their research is based on studies and theories that haven't been published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. What are your thoughts about that kind of influence? That's actually the reason we wrote the book. We wanted a book that health providers would find useful themselves. The book is a a compilation of evidence. It's clear where evidence starts and we by bullet points, so it's easy for health providers to use it also. But we wanted a place that was thorough and complete and uh, where parents could go and reliably count on the uh, information because much of the information that you find in in the media or on the Internet is you equally find information and misinformation. 
And this was an attempt to make the evidence available to people so they could read it and understand what it is and then make their decisions. Now, I think the the whole interest in vaccine safety has come about because many people have theorized that vaccines are linked to autism. And the way scientists phrase it is that the evidence favors rejection of the hypothesis that thimerosal, MMR vaccine, and other vaccines are linked to autism. Now, why is it that scientists can't say that vaccines do not cause autism beyond any shadow of a doubt? That's a wonderful question. The reason is that if you're an honest scientist, you can't prove a negative. You can't say that all the evidence shows that there is no association. There could always be an association that you haven't detected. But after time, when you get lots and lots of studies done by different people using different techniques, using different populations, the evidence begins to get overwhelming. And that's an expression that's used as a favors rejection of the hypothesis. What that really means is that uh, there is no evidence to support the hypothesis. Albert Einstein once said, nobody can ever prove me right, but one experiment would prove me wrong. And there's uh, truth in that when you're talking about statistics. But there is no evidence that vaccines cause autism, either the measles vaccine that's been thoroughly, that hypothesis has been thoroughly discredited, and there's no evidence that thimerosal and vaccines or mercury, for example, in other forms has ever been associated with autism. Certainly certain forms of mercury have been associated with developmental disorders, but not with autism. So there really is just no no evidence at all, and there's a great deal of evidence that there is no association. And so I think that's one of those areas that's hard for scientists to defend their arguments that way in front of a parent who's a celebrity with a handicapped child who's absolutely in belief that the child was harmed by vaccines. But the available evidence is that there is no association between vaccines and autism. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is vaccine expert and author, Dr. Martin Myers. We're discussing what patients want to know about vaccine safety. Now, most of the scientific literature has stated that there's no link between thimerosal or measles-containing vaccines and autism. But what about any of the other ingredients in vaccines, other antigens such as DTAP, hepatitis B, or components, which are often scary for patients, such as formaldehyde, aluminum salts, and other ingredients? Lots of antigens. Uh, Yes, we do immunize against more diseases and we give more shots than we used to. But we also give less antigens than we used to. When we were giving the smallpox vaccine or the old wholesale pertussis vaccine, we gave many thousands of antigens and immunogens, and we give much less now because of the modern technology. Uh, concerns about other components of vaccines, uh, you mentioned formaldehyde. There is not formaldehyde in vaccines, but the Food and Drug Administration requires that if a chemical has been utilized in the manufacturing process, that it be listed as a residual. In other words, that in theory, it could be there present in very small quantities. And formaldehyde is used to inactivate certain of the viruses and components of vaccines, but there's none remaining in the finished vaccine. Other additives that get placed in vaccine, there are stabilizers that are put in to keep the vaccine stable, such as gelatin in a measles vaccine that allow it to have a better shelf life in your office. And then there are adjuvants like aluminum salts, which are used to help increase the immune response to the immunogen. Now, some parents are taking this information. They're deciding, well, I want to 
do my own vaccine schedule or I don't want my own child to be exposed to this. I never got sick from chickenpox when I was a child or with measles, and I'm fine now. Is there really a problem when parents delay vaccines or choose not to give them all or if they try to split up certain components? There is a risk in delaying vaccines or omitting vaccines. The risk from chicken, I had chickenpox too, and I had measles, and I had a whole lot of things when I was a child, and I survived all of them. But that may not be the safest course. If you develop chickenpox, a natural disease, the risk of developing a bacterial superinfection like impetigo or or more serious invasive infections is about 5% of children. And a proportion of those that get bacterial infection will end up on antibiotics or in the hospital, and some of them die. That's a risk that I think is just too great. The same with measles. The risk for measles, wild-type measles, is that between one and four per thousand children who get measles in a developed country will develop encephalitis or, and or die. And encephalitis from measles virus leaves a permanent brain damage in about half of the children who develop it. So these are real risks. And the problem is we don't see much of these diseases anymore, and so we don't think about them as being something that places our own children or grandchildren at risk. But in fact, measles, for example, is only a plane ride away. And of the cases of measles that have been occurring outbreaks in the United States, they've been mostly imported from other countries where there has been this concern about measles in vaccine-causing autism and immunization levels have fallen, more cases of measles there, and we've imported those cases. Most of the children who get measles have been imported that way are children who are unimmunized. But it also places the children who have been immunized at risk. So no vaccine is 100% effective. So when measles is introduced into a community of, say, unimmunized children, they place their classmates and their neighbors' children and others at risk of uh, contracting uh, measles, even though they were, were immunized. So it's not just an individual risk. It's also a risk for communities. Now, one question I get asked often is whether the hepatitis B vaccine at birth is really necessary, and what are we doing to our children if we give vaccines when they're so young or even give vaccines to pregnant mothers before they give birth? Can you talk a little bit about those very early vaccines? You know, the very early, let's talk about the, the newborn vaccine dose of hepatitis B. One of the things that's happened in several communities, one in British Columbia and a couple others, is that transmission of hepatitis B has stopped. That's really important. Hepatitis B, unfortunately, got a label of being an altered lifestyle agent. Men who have sex with men and sexually transmitted or transmitted by drug abuse and so on. And it's true, that increases the risk many, many fold for hepatitis B. But the normal person, a third of people who develop a hepatitis B infection have no known at-risk source, including children. And when you get infected with hepatitis B as a child, and the younger you are when you get infected with hepatitis B, the greater likelihood is that you're going to have chronic infection. And chronic infection is what places people at risk for cancer and for cirrhosis of the liver many, many decades later. Parents ask about studies who compare autism rates in vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. And they say, well, why don't we see autism in the Amish population who supposedly has not been vaccinated? What's your response to that? That got promulgated by Dan Olmsted, a journalist 
who wrote that he didn't see Amish having autism and his source was uh, talking to a salesman who went around to Amish communities. I don't think that's a very valid study. The problem is that the Amish is a relatively small community and it's hard to get large enough numbers to be able to do statistical evaluations of that type. But it's also been said that autism doesn't occur in, in adults. So that's absolutely not true. It does. The problem is you can't, in a population like the Amish, it's very hard to get enough numbers to be able to address that. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Martin Myers. We've been discussing what patients want to know about vaccine safety. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to a special segment focused on children's health on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.